Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the second series of Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canon Gate, three independent publishers. In each episode, we'll hear from a different author and learn about the books that are closest to their hearts, their latest projects and their local indie bookshop. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and recorded remotely in line with current restrictions. With me today is this episode's writer, Selena Godden. Well, I say with me, but um, as you may all guess, current restrictions mean that Selena and I are talking from our homes via computer screens, as we're all quite used to these days. So forgive us for any surprising ambient sounds. Um, However, back to the specifics, and specifically Selena, who is a poet, a memoirist and a broadcaster. She's published several volumes of poetry, including one, I have to say, Selena, with a title I absolutely love of this particular poem, which is My Tits Are More Feminist Than Your Tits. (laughs) Great appeal to me there. Um, And uh, you've also contributed to several essay collections. But today we're here to talk about your debut novel, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Um, I'm actually going to spell this out for podcast listeners who haven't read the title. So it's Mrs. as in the female title and then Mrs. M-I-S-S-E-S. Because I think that does change the meaning, do you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it is Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Yeah, it's the way you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to practice. You can can school me on this one as we go. Um, But thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Thank you so much. uh, Thank you so much for having me today. And it's it's lovely to meet you, Anna. Hello. Hello. Um, (laughs) So... It's an appropriate metaphor, given the book, but I'm going to go in with the big guns, possibly cannon fire, and say to you, why death? Oh, dear. Um, well, the book come, come, comes from a place of of mourning and grief, um, and I was going through a difficult period in my life, and there seemed to be a lot of funerals to go to. And so the book very much comes from there, from from sort of seeking a way to mourn and questioning the big questions, trying to find answers for those questions. And one thing that came to me was um, a way to humanise death, if you like, and to imagine conversations with death and what would death look like. And it struck me that perhaps she was a woman and an invisible woman, a black woman, and a silenced or silent woman. Um, and so from there, the, the, these conversations and thoughts and pieces started coming together, and that was the sort of the way the book began, really. I was walking through Whitechapel. It was Christmas. Um, my father committed suicide one Christmas when I was a little girl, when I was nine. And so Christmas always has this double-edged kind of feeling, this morning, this memory, you know, and, and it's like always that time of year, remembering. Um, and I was walking down through Whitechapel, and I 
was, you know, my sort of annual kind of feeling that I have every year. Um, and then I heard this voice and it wasn't my normal narrator voice, my normal internal dialogue, my normal. And uh, the voice went, I know a lot of dead people now. And it was this woman's voice and it was so strong and compelling. And that's kind of where some of the writing came from, just walking down through East London and just writing in doorways and trying to record it in my phone, in my voice notes, this whole monologue, um, which begins, uh, I know a lot of dead people now. And that was her speaking to me. So in a way, you know, it's very similar to how it's described with the main character in the book. As well. Yes. Or that... One of the two main characters, rather. Yes, I used that um, experience as as a way for Wolf to meet Mrs. Death, also in in this kind of ramshackle, kind of wandering around East London way. Um, yeah, so I used a real that sort of real experience there. Um, I wanted to talk about your characterisation of Death. Actually, I also want to talk about Wolf, but we'll get to them later on. Um, so you know. You had death as a woman, a working-class woman, a black woman. Um, what was the reasoning for, for making, you know, moving away from the hood and the scythe? And I think it's apparent if you read the book, but I'm interested to hear you as well. Um, I think I think it's this idea of how is, how is death so good at death's job? And, and this kind of idea of death moving silently and in this quiet way. And I think I say in the book, there's no one more ignored or talked over or betrayed than the woman, than a working class woman, than black women. So Mrs. Death appears in all these places. She's selling you your tobacco. She's the cleaner in the in the hospital ward. She's kind of there. She's everywhere. She's so everywhere, but no one sees her. No one listens to that sort of silent screaming um and so that's that I kind of picked up on that the kind of idea of death as a woman when you when you write death um as female you instantly start to write think about death in a very different way and you start to think about the way women um are affected by men's choices and men's decisions women and children in war for one big example um you know the widows of war um and yeah, so that's that. That was that was how it sort of came about and developed from there. Really, I find that interesting, actually. Yeah, because that was what I picked up from um, changing changing death to a woman. Uh, the characterization is male, although you do point out in the book that um, there are in many cultures death goddesses, but they're often linked as female serial killers often are to a male entity. Um, but to have death characterized as a woman. You're right, it does change the view, really. Um, and I think you really foreground this idea of death as a job that must be done, um, you know, the thankless work of it. She's so busy and she's cleaning up. Um, did that sort of come out through writing or were your ideas given you... And I'm, I'm sorry that you've had a difficult time. Um, Thank you. I empathise completely. Um do you did that come out of your experiences or did that come out of your writing? I think it's a combination of the two. And I think anyone that reads the book, particularly um, given the circumstances and this terrible, terrible crisis that we're living through now. So I think anyone who's losing or has lost someone will find um, find this book quite comforting in a way. I've had people tell me that it's like having a friend in their pocket which is which is one of my intentions 
to kind of humanise death or to imagine death as a as a kind of compassionate figure, although she is merciless and although she is cruel and also quite funny and quite dark and there's some there's some prickly humour in there and sort of gallows humour, I suppose we call it, um, quite literally. Um, um, but I think she, I think, yeah, I think it, it comes from experience and imagining conversations and also imagining how Mrs Death would speak to not just to me, um, or to Wolf as 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 a kind of young troubled young writer who's struggling with suicide and depression and suicidal thoughts and depression and unwanted thoughts um, and conflicts is is also how Mrs Death would talk to someone like David Bowie or to Prince or to sort of celebrities or to terrible scary historical characters like Jack the Ripper or and so I started it started to really open up imagining all these different conversations how death would speak of them and how they would speak to her so yeah it was a it was quite a thing to write so you you've been writing this for a while which I know because um in 2018, there was a Radio 4 documentary about your writing process for this novel. Um, you mentioned this year briefly, as you were talking just now. I mean, you, you couldn't have predicted that you would release the novel in a time of such death, actually. Um, do you think it's a, a not a good time for the novel to come out? Because that sounds horrible and cynical and mercenary, and I don't want to <laughs> ascribe that to you. But uh, maybe you think, do you think it will be useful for people at the moment? Um, well, the book is has death in the title, but however, the book is really all about life and living life to its fullest and telling the people that we love that we love them before it's too late and... And it's very much full of hope and courage. I don't think the book is really a wailing wall. It's more a rallying cry to to sort of, you know, be there for each other and to be heroes in our own lives, in our own stories. It very there's a whole chapter um, about about how nurses and teachers are our heroes, and how valuable that is now more, even more now than it was when I wrote it in 2019. Um, but I think, yeah, I, there's some bits of the book I, were, I was writing back in 2011, 2012. Um, I think I've been collecting deaths for a while, unusual death. That's why Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, this idea of deaths that are that have been escaped or people that have that have survived, um, and also the very tiny things that we don't even know we've survived. Like we don't know how. We forget how miraculous life is, how amazing life is, and how how very close to death we all are at all times. Um, never more so than now with coronavirus. But um, before that, you, you don't know if your train driver's going to drive off the track. You don't know if you're going to your head's going to explode with an aneurysm. Um, well, what I did want to do was um, also talk to you about Wolf, uh, who in some ways is the ideal narrator for this there was a section a line a couple of lines in the book where they described themselves as biracial bisexual bigender and bipolar that's my labels and my boxes that's me I thought it was interesting because Wolf is also in kind of a liminal state between life and death as well mm. they are a human with an animal name they apart from the ones they list themselves so there's lots of in-between states for Wolf um how interesting was it to write someone like that? 
That's incredibly astute of you. Thank you for picking up on that. I really oh, love that you've you. picked up on that. And also, of course, Wolf is in between states of sobriety and being sort of tripping and, and, and also between dream and sleep and not being able to tell what's been a, an amazing hallucination dream or what's real and this kind of weird, milky milky veil between the two realities, unrealities. Um, I really enjoyed Wolf um, loosely based on young writers that I know, struggling writers that I know. Um, that kind of idea of trying to fit in, um, trying to be something you're not. Um, the idea of, obviously, I'm mixed race and, and biracial and... Um, and a lot of those things do echo in, in my own personality. So there was a lot of my own, um, oh, what's the word? I kind of mixed up spaghetti, chuck it all in casserole kind of person that I am. So um, they, they, I sort of drew on some of my early diaries and some of my early feelings. When I was a struggling, very young poet, young writer, and uh, just really skin and just trying really hard and sending my poems off and getting rejected every week, every every package you send. And, you know, when you're sort of in your early 20s and just struggling with just this really set, you know, idea that you want to be a writer and just, you know, yeah. So there's a lot of just little tiny bits of memoir in there, maybe. They are kind of an ideal guide through the story in a way and their uncertainty makes them more so... Um, there's something else you mentioned in the book, actually, which is uh, actually going back to my youth now as well. <laughs> um, but you talk about people being sentimental about music from when they were younger. Um, it's it's part of the one of Mrs. Death's speeches about how life changes. Um, but actually, music from when I was younger is where I first came across you, um, which I had to put two and two together as I was doing my research for this. But I first came across you on Cold Cuts Let Us Play, which I bought when it came out in 1997. Oh, my and goodness. Strangely, your voice on the track Noah's Toilet has stayed in my head all those years. <laughs> um, the, oh, let's, let's, let's go to a place like, oh, name with that place, which oh, yes. I used to let's recite to when drunk place. and slightly older on the Kingsland Road when all the bars were changing names all the time. That's and now amazing. it's you. That You're is here. amazing, Anna. That is amazing. <laughs> Oh, yes, let's go to that new place. So the place is a bit like that place. That piece, oh, my goodness. Well, I know it very well, strangely. It's one of those ones that's uh, kind of haunted me over the years. <laughs> oh, no, those were great years, uh, travelling and touring with Cold Cut. That, I had so many adventures and amazing, amazing, beautiful, good times they are, good memories. Cold Cut and Ninja Tune are amazing. Yeah, I love that. Um, I also kind of was interested in music because when I first started reading the book, the very first section, there's a disclaimer. Um, this book contains dead people. This book cannot see the future. This book is dabbling in the past. This book is not about funerals, although funerals are mentioned. You do not have to wear black to read this work. You do not have to bring flowers. And when I was reading it, I was thinking, on the beat, it reminds me very much of Gil Scott Heron. The first chapter, that disclaimer, there's a certain kind of shared rhythm with the revolution will not be televised, which I went back and played again. Was that intentional or am I reaching here? That's amazing. I hadn't even thought about it. But just when you just said that, it would actually go with 
the revolution will not be televised. Yeah, it really does. That is not intentional, but that is beautiful that you saw that in that, that you saw that in that. Yeah, I kind of love that. Um, the disclaimer is, was, I, I just imagined the thing with death is everyone owns their own death and their own mourning. For example, um, to put it really simply, okay, this is how I can, only way I can explain it. If you stub your toe, you don't then think about all the other toes that have ever been stubbed. You don't then go, oh, my toe is stubbed, that I am, my foot is in pain. Oh, but other people have been in pain. All you think about is your toe, that moment in that pain. And death is very much like that. And mourning is very much like that. You think about your pain and your, and you kind of own that moment. And you can't imagine that anyone else has ever hurt the way you're hurting or felt loss the way you feel loss. And I think that's very interesting. And this kind of idea of, of kind of sharing and the language and the ritual and the way we talk about death. We're going to talk about, uh, we ask all of our authors on this podcast about their favourite independent bookshop. And you have chosen one of the absolute classics, which I'm sure everyone listening will know by name, even if not by experience, which is Shakespeare and Co. in Paris. Um, have you ever lived in Paris or do you know the bookshop as a visitor? I haven't ever lived in Paris, although I have been there many times and had the most amazing adventures and food and parties and good times. I love Paris. Um, Shakespeare and Co. were very kind. I was there with Scarlett Sabet um, when I launched Pessimism is for Lightweights and I had the most wonderful time and I got to sleep in the bookshop. I love a bookshop that you can sleep in and all the books surrounding you and oh, it was such a wonderful experience and I really hope to take um, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death there. I imagine um, that would be amazing. Um, there's actually a little tiny part in the book where Mrs. Death takes Wolf to Shakespeare and Co. Paris um, into the future to imagine what the book would look like on a shelf in a bookshop. Um, so I'd like to read that particular page in Shakespeare and Co. That would be magic to me. I was quite glad you picked Shakespeare and Co. because of that section. Um, Mrs. Death complains that they've got her all done up like Grace Jones on the cover, doesn't she? Uh, yeah, yeah, Mrs. Death is like, oh, look, there I am, seven foot tall woman, <laughs> typical, you know, yeah. So, yeah, I kind of like that, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that most people love about Shakespeare and Co. that I do whenever I've been there is that it's a bookshop with such history Yes. Um, not just physical history, but literary history. It's in all sorts of books as well. Um, mm. Who is your favourite kind of Shakespeare and co-affiliated author? Oh, well, that's really difficult to answer. But can I tell you th about this? When I stayed there, they keep a file on everyone that ever stays there because you know people go and stay there that aren't writers that just help in the bookshop to keep it running. And so I spent some hours reading all these um, these letters from people that have stayed there. They're amazing, these young, going way back, way back, decades, decades, and people going, you know, I'm from Illinois and I want to be a poet one day. And just all these names, all these people that just have, have passed through that shop. Oh, they're my heroes. They're amazing. All those dreamers. Bring on the dreamers, that's what I say. I, I just thought that was wonderful. They call them tumbleweeds, don't they? That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I read all these page, all these files of tumbleweeds over the decades and I just thought they were just so wonderful. And all of them, you know, their love for literature and books and their big dreams. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's amazing. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So talking about another writer who has lived in Paris, um, you mentioned two titles by Jean Rhys. Um, firstly, let them call it Jazz, which I have here. <laughs> it's tiny Penguin 60p form from I've many years that. ago, yeah. um, which is a collection of her short stories and also Wide Sagasso Sea. Um, I reread the title story before I spoke to you. Um, and the main character is also called Selena, which I'd forgotten. Although a different oh, yeah. spelling to you. Oh, um, I've forgotten that too. Um, but in a way, there were some elements of it where, you know, she's stuck in this empty room drinking wine on her own with this mm-hmm. kind of slightly dubious cellar beneath her and, and kind of waiting for someone to turn up. And that, to me, also kind of had echoes of Wolf in Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Um, sort of drugging herself into a state where it was kind of acceptable to carry on living like that. Mm. Um, what was it that you made you pick these two? 
Okay. Um, I've got a thing about Jean Rhys. Um, my my truth is that I hardly read women when I was a young writer in the 1990s. I was all, when I was first kind of starting to write, I thought it was all about the men. And, and if you look at sort of beat poetry, it's all male writers. I was, you know, I was really into my Bukowski. I was really into it. That was kind of, I was one of those, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of writers do start there. And, and it wasn't, and it wasn't for years. And then, all of a sudden, I stumbled upon Jean Reese, and she was in Paris at the same time as Orwell, at the same time as Miller, at the same time as all these amazing male writers that I'd been really, you know, really pouring over. And it was like, honestly, it was like a window opening. It was just the light, you know, the curtains opening, and the light just coming through. And I was like, there was a woman there. This is her account, and not. Not a nice nin so much because I, I I prefer yeah, I just preferred Jean Rhys. It's just a kind of harder, more real, more more filthy, more sad, more beautiful, and I just really really so I just became a bit of a um, yeah just a bit obsessed with Jean Rhys. Um, and uh, and so uh, yeah, I think my f- I think Good Morning Midnight is probably my favourite. Um, but I really love her short stories um, and I really loved Wide Sargasso Sea and After Leaving Mr Mackenzie. Um, yeah, I think Jean Reese was was a great writer. Um, in November, they made me a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, which is very posh, isn't it? And That's you have wonderful. To pick, well done. Yeah. I think they got the name wrong on the piece of paper, to be honest. But <laughs> but they made me a fellow and you have to pick a pen um, that you're going to sign the log book with, that you're going to sign the big... And uh, the new pen that they've got is Jean Reese's pen. So I was very excited. So I signed the book with her pen. Um, yeah, I think Jean Reese has just got such a, such a sadness and such a, a wry sort of dark sense of humour and such a... Yeah, it's, I just I just think her writing's fantastic, and like I said, she was like the the first uh, female writer that I got really into, in the same way that I'd got into Bukowski as a much younger poet. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, when you just go, "Whoa, this is the stuff." Yeah, I started work on a novel actually, imagining being the granddaughter of Jean Reese or Jean Reese's character in um, Good Morning Midnight. I should probably finish it. Mm. It's interesting actually because. Her character of Antoinette Causeway is, um, in my opinion, giving much needed voice to the person known as Bertha in Jane Eyre. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's talked about a lot in terms of wide Sargasso Sea, but I like the idea that, that all of a sudden she's not just the mad woman in the attic. She's mm-hmm. she's a real person with hopes and dreams and an interior life. Yeah. Um, so, you know... Talking about kind of giving a voice to who hasn't previously been there, which is kind of present in your work as well. But you also mentioned as one of your classic picks would be Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Um, So, you know, whereas Wide Sargasso Sea gave a voice to the mad woman in the attic, then we have Esther in The Bell Jar, which is, you know, for the time, quite a raw portrait of um, someone going through mental illness. Uh, I remember her describing, the central character, Esther Greenwood, describing herself feeling dull and empty, rather like the eye of a tornado in the middle of the surrounding hullabaloo, um, which I thought was a really good way of putting it. But what effect 
did characters like Esther Greenwood, like Antoinette Crossway, have when you were thinking about Wolf's internal world? Ah, well, when I was writing Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, um, I spent a month in a prison tower in a prison um, in Ireland, in County Antrim, in a town called Cushendor. I went and stayed in the curfew tower as a guest of Bill Drummond. And I stayed there on From my the own. From the KLF? Yes, ah. yes. And um, they, he invited... Um, I had it in my head that Mrs. Death lived in a lighthouse at first, when I was first writing the book. Um, this kind of idea of a tower or a, white house, a lighthouse kept going round and round in my head when I was writing her. Um, and so it came to be that I found out that Bill Drummond had this amazing tower in um, Cushendall. And Noiriki, who are um, Edinburgh-based literary um, collective, they invited me there both at the same time. So all of a sudden it was like Bill and Noiriki and then it was like, well, I'm no getting out of here. I've got to go and spend a month on my own. It's like, what have I asked for? And what have I gone and said I'd do? And it was amazing and terrifying. And there was a dungeon and there was a murder hole and there were ghosts and it was dark and there were spiders and it was isolating and it was empowering and it was also really confidence building and and I learned a lot um, a lot about the book is about fear anyway I'm getting to there the long way round is there was a tiny tiny little local library open and I could go there and take out books I didn't take enough books to read we never do do we so I took um I went in the little library and and found Sylvia Place Belgier and I read it in that prison tower in that dungeon in there and I was like wow how could I have forgotten this book and I thought it was so powerful and I think um, yeah, there was a, a lot of uh, inspiration there for writing Wolf and writing about that feeling of of kind of losing control or or losing it. Um, yeah, and, and those sort of mental health um, troubles and uh, challenges. Yeah, it was an incredible book, isn't it? The, the Bell Jar. I'd forgotten. I think it's got one of probably the best opening lines. Uh, the summer they executed the Rosenbergs. That queer, sultry summer. Um, mm. I think it just gives you that sense of dread straight away without mm-hmm. it being, you know, it's all external to her, what she's talking about, the weather and the news and other people, but it kind of gets the mood of the book down completely just in those two sentences. It really does. It really does, yeah. Um, going on to, uh, still with a Scottish link, though, actually, um, a book I haven't read at all, and I will level with you here. I'm not entirely sure I know how to pronounce the title, which is David Keenan's, is it Extabeth, I've been saying, in a yeah. faintly Mexican way. <laughs> Extabeth. Now, this is a fantastically strange and wonderful and dark and beautiful book. I really enjoyed this. Um, I read it... Um, I read it in the caravan. We've got a tiny little 1970s caravan and we we run away in it when we can when there's when there's no restrictions. Um and uh, and I read it in the caravan just overlooking lakes and mountains and oh it's such a haunting story. David Keenan is such a magic maker. He's such a magic man and a magical writer. Um I really highly recommend it. I think it only came out last year. It's really new. Um yeah, and I, I really enjoyed it. I just I felt like I was privy to something quite special when I read that. I just loved it. Because it covers a lot, and it's a book I don't know, as you say, yes, it only came out last November. Um, 
But it has everything from an angelic presence, the title character. I'm sticking with Exabeth. Um, yeah, Exabeth. Uh, yeah. But Russian literature and relationships, and um, was also sounding quite joyful. I, I think uh, I was really tempted to read it, having read all the descriptions and yours. Uh, what was it that drew you to it in the first place? Well, I'm a big fan of David Keenan anyway. We're both on Rough Trade books with our pamphlets and we've done quite a few events together. I just think he's a really big character and a really incredibly... Um, um, he has so much um, insight and it's very... Um, yeah, it's just he's really on it. He's really on it. And so in his writing, he's very there, very present. Um, and I just, yeah, it's just a really exciting read. It's like being let into a secret, like going through a doorway to a secret other room where the other conversations are happening. His writing, that's what, that's the best way I can describe it right now. And if someone doesn't pull that out and use it as a, a quote for him, then they don't know what they're, <laughs> they're missing because I think that's a wonderful description. Um and then again, we're going to go into someone else who I'm not familiar with. I feel like I'm learning a lot from you today. <laughs> oh. um, but from John Higgs, and you mentioned the book William Blake versus the World. Um, now, he describes himself, which I think is brilliant, as a writer who specialises in finding previously unsuspected narratives hidden in obscure corners of our history and culture. And I thought, what an intro. Um, would you agree with his assessment of his, himself? I agree with everything John Higgs says ever. I just think he's incredible. He's like a prophet. I really, really love John Higgs. I love all his books. It was because of John Higgs that I wrote the poem Pessimism is for Lightweights when I went to one of his talks. Um, he wrote this incredible book called Watling Street, which is um, about the history of, of England and how we got to where we are because of where we were. Um, and And it's just incredible. And during one of his talks, he said you know pessimism is for lightweights and it was such an empowering um talk and he is so enlightening um illuminating um so i yeah so i, I he asked me to write a poem for his watling street podcast and that's where the poem came from um now he he's yeah he's got he's at the moment he's um work got some new um pieces out now and um, William Blake now is the one that I've read but coming out next is William Blake versus the world I'm very interested in William Blake and in what John Higgs has to say about him and 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 what that's got to do with now and and how visionary and inspired he was and i'm i'm just really intrigued i haven't read the new book yet but i've read uh the last pamphlet william blake now and it was just fascinating i, I, I think william blake was just yeah just a fascinating historical figure yeah what is it about blake that really gets to you is it the art the poetry the politics it's the it's the magic i think the the this kind of idea that william blake was eidetic I just love that word. The idea of being able to see your your idea, your vision, to have visions in 3D, to kind of get up from your desk. And my understanding is to get up from your desk and walk around and see your story in 3D. And I thought that was very wonderful. I've always been, you know, he he seemed to very much like Wolf, kind of inhabit this in-between world between dream and reality between, I don't know, this sort of existence of something going on underneath the skin of the reality of what we're all experiencing um, 
yeah, I think it's that side of it. Um, but yeah, I'm just drawn to it all, to to William Blake, and I'm very much looking forward. I'll be able to tell you more after I've read John Higgs' new new book. But um, yeah, what is it that Higgs brings to the subject? Do you think, or his subjects in general? They say that um, a good book. Um, when you're reading it, it's like having a friendly hand on the shoulder behind you. And John Higgs's writing is like that for me. It's like a kind of, a, you know, a, having that sort of friendly voice in your... in, And he takes the really big subjects um, and just sort of spins them and, and talks about them in such a, such a way. Um, it is about fear and it is about danger and it is about all these big scary things but when John Higgs writes about them they're just in this much more practical um yeah I just find his writing really soothing um highly recommend the future starts here is a really good one too yeah I think the idea that uh pessimism is for lightweights and we could also be some optimism right now makes this a, a solid recommendation for everyone going forward at the moment yeah yeah put your energy into that into courage and hope it's like hope is an energy hope is a group project hope is something we've all got to pull together and you know and and kind of that's what hope is it feels to me like an energy and the more people putting energy into hope it's got to be it's got to be a good thing right yeah now i think if i was going to take the title for a poem from our conversation i would probably choose hope is a group project (laughs) (laughs) maybe it depends on who you're working with but (laughs) uh, the final writer that you wanted to talk about um arena senekoji um and you chose her collection of short stories nude branch um explain to me why uh this one, this collection of short stories, was the particular collection of short stories you wanted to talk about. I'm, I'm just a massive fan. I'm just fangirling here. I think Irenison has an incredible sharp eye. I think she's very clever and imaginative and unique in her the way she um, hits a subject. I just really love I'm sitting here. I've got Nudie Branch here, but also um, Speak um, Guy Gantula. Guy Gantular is really brilliant too, um, and Butterfly Fish. So just all, I really love her books. I just think she's a real voice and a really new and fresh voice for now. Um, and yeah, I'm just a big fan of all she does, really. I just think she's really on it. She's really clever and, uh, and imaginative, and, and a lot of her work's very trippy and hallucinogenic y and like over out there, just out there, um, kind of fables and myths twisted and turned on their heads. Um, yeah, I just think she's amazing, really good writer. For example, in Nudie Branch, you'll find a mysterious woman of the sea in search of love who arrives on an island inhabited by eunuchs. There's also a dimensional hopping um, monk navigating a season of silence faces and a bloody reckoning in the ruins of an abbey. Um, and it's just they're just really strange stories. I don't know where she gets them from. I think she might have even weirder dreams than me (laughs) i wonder if she gets her stories from her dreams it feels like she does they're really good though really good i love that the stories from a dream space um thank you so much selena that's been brilliant talking to you um i am looking forward to your publication date uh which will have happened by the time uh 
this podcast goes out. So um, for those Thank of you, you who are interested, Mrs. Death, which I hope is everybody having listened to this, uh, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death by Selena Gooden is out with Canongate this February. Um, do look out for it. Selena, as we've discussed already, you've you've managed to write something that is almost shockingly of the now without um, being knowingly clairvoyant or even doing it at the time. So uh, I hope I've not forced you into a strange Cassandra position, but um, I think it will really resonate with a lot of people right now. Oh, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash readlikearwriter. And we'd love to hear what you think too, so you can tweet us at readlikeapod. 